it's amazing to me how I can be working on a message all throughout the week and not fully understand exactly what God is doing until the moment it comes out of my mouth. Here we are in installment number two of this series, Lyrics and Lines, where we're taking individual psalms and doing an exegetical survey on what those psalms meant thousands of years ago and their application for today and how those psalms were really songs that were used for worship and how our worship today is birthed from the very book of psalms. But today, I want to pick up where we left off. It was not my intention to do this. And again, I'm going to say, hang with me upstairs. I'm going to be all over the place wherever the Lord takes us today. But I want to pick up where we left off last week when I gave you this thought at the very end of my message that I didn't have a lot of time to build upon. Today, I think God wants to expound upon that. And that thought is we have to stop projecting our weaknesses onto God. Grab it. We have to stop projecting our weaknesses onto God. Just because you're broke doesn't mean that God is. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His name is Jehovah Jireh. Just because you feel powerless in your situation doesn't mean that God is. He's all powerful. Just because you feel consumed or confused in your situation doesn't mean that God is. He sits on the throne and he's in control. So somebody look at your neighbor and announce to them the title of today's message, Coming Out of Egypt. Look at somebody else and say, I'm coming out of Egypt. I want to give to you what the Lord has laid upon my heart today. And I love how God causes this metamorphosis to happen in a message where I have one thing planned, but yet he does something else. Because today we're going to be in a narrative of scripture that I had no intention of going into. However, God had a plan. So turn with me to Psalms chapter 114. Psalms 114 is the narrative of scripture that we will explore today. However, I want to read to you a passage of scripture that we read last week just to refresh your memory, but also to establish some context for where we're going. Just stay on your feet with me for another minute. The passage of scripture that we're going to look at, you don't have to turn there. It will be on your screens, but it's in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22 and following. Here is Jesus on the night that he's betrayed conveying a message to the disciples about what will unfold in the next few hours. It was the darkest moments in the life of the Messiah. The darkest moments in the lives of the disciples. It was an emotionally gut-wrenching experience where he began to talk about how their lives were going to change radically from that moment on. I want you to place yourself in that story. I want you to place yourself in the upper room at the Last Supper that night when all of the disciples are listening to what Jesus is saying about what is going to happen. He talks about Judas betraying him. He talks about Peter denying him. He talks about, he, he talks about the people turning their backs upon him. And the lives of the disciples are hanging in the balance. So here's what happens in verse 22. 
It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, take this, this is my body. <laughs> what? <laughs> Can you imagine the disciples there? What? This is the first time they've heard this. Verse 23, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What? The disciples, they don't understand what's happening in this moment. The disciples are intrigued. They're baffled. There's this emotional, spiritual, mental, physical, even a financial struggle that's happening at this moment because they're asking why, they're asking when, they're asking how. Can you imagine the fear, the stress, the anxiety that is there? Because here is Jesus talking about he's about to die on the cross and that they're going to have to give their lives as well for the mission. Whoa, I didn't sign up for that. Here are the disciples, this emotionally charged atmosphere where he's talking about what is going to happen in their lives. You can imagine that it was probably tears, confusion, chaos, questions in the room. What would Jesus do to change the sound in that room that night? Look what happens in verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Hold on a second. When they put their praise on, right in the middle of the darkest moments in the life of Christ, he put on some praise. And the praise that he put on interrupted the sounds of insecurity. The praise that he put on interrupted the sounds of stress. The praise that he put on interrupted the sound of fear. The praise that he put on, if you'll remember from last week, theologians believe it was not just one song that they were singing, but rather it was a cluster of psalms called the Halil. Six separate psalms or psalms that they were singing at that moment. The halil means hallelujah. It means jubilant praise. It means thanksgiving. At the darkest moment in the life of Christ, he began to put on praise. He went into a place of praise. This hymn was his go-to, and he began to quote, quote, if you will, and sing the praise of Psalms 113, where it says, Praise the Lord, all ye. Who call yourself servants. Praise ye the Lord. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord because he's your help. Praise ye the Lord because he's your hope. Praise ye the Lord because he's your refuge. Praise ye the Lord because he's your forgiveness. Praise ye the Lord because he's your peace that surpasses all understanding. Praise ye the Lord because he's your tomorrow. Praise ye the Lord because he's your healing. Is somebody going to help me praise? ye the Lord but what's so cool about that praise service that Jesus was in with the disciples is that their praise did not stop with Psalms 113 it went on into Psalms 114 and Psalms 114 became the illustration of the description that was placed upon the greatness of God in Psalms 113 in fact let me read to you Psalms 114 watch this so they finish praising the Lord and then he goes right into something that is so incredible he says this when Israel came out of Egypt keep in mind they're singing this Jacob 
from a people of a foreign tongue. Judah became God's sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Hold on a second. The sea looked and fled. The sea looked and fled. Hold on a second. How can the sea flee? What is the sea fleeing from? If you'll remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form. And darkness hovered over its surface, and the spirit hovered over the surface of the water, and he said, let there be. At this moment, the seas flee. Why? Because there is God. And the Jordan turned back. Watch this. And the mountains leapt like rams, the hills like lambs. What was it? See that you fled. Why the Jordan did you turn back? Why mountains did you leap like rams? You hills like lambs. Tremble earth at the presence of the Lord. This is why. At the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into a spring of water. Hold on a second. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who has ever lived, he said of this psalm that there are none that compare. Be seated, be seated. He says of this psalm that there are none that compare to its grandeur. Here is Jesus on the night that he was betrayed with the disciples in the upper room. The disciples are asking why, how, when, where. The disciples are confused by what they're hearing. And here Jesus begins to take them to something that God did hundreds of years before. He begins to explain to them the miraculous nature of God, the delivering nature of God, the deliverance nature of God, I should say, in such a way that they would realize what he was saying was something that they had always held on to. In other words, he is proving that God is who he said he is based upon the redemption act that happened in the old covenant. Oh, this is good. Can I teach for a minute? Here is Jesus singing this psalm that is reminding the disciples in the room about the greatest act of redemption in the Old Covenant. They're complaining about life. They're asking the questions, what is going to happen? When and why? This is not how we thought. This is not why we thought. This is not when we thought. This is not where we thought. And at the moment that their minds were going to something that looked like life was out of control, Jesus took them to the truth of the one who is in control. Let me tell you something. This psalm is sung for three reasons in the Jewish culture. Reason number one is to remember the deliverance of Israel that God gave from the bondage of Egypt. Write that down. It's to remember the Israelites' deliverance by God from the bondage of Egypt. So here they are singing this psalm, all together in one accord, singing this psalm. Jesus is reminding them about what God can do, reminding them about what God has already done, but I think not only was he reminding them, but I think he was also teaching a message here. 
He was teaching them and us the faithfulness of God when we find ourselves in Egypt. Somebody say, coming out of Egypt. Somebody else say, coming out of Egypt. You see, the disciples were in Egypt, if you will. Maybe their Egypt didn't look like the one that their ancestors had to endure, but yet it was still Egypt, Richie, nonetheless. It was still very severe. Maybe they were not in bondage with, with the physical evidence of, of chains, but yet they were in some form of bondage because that is why Jesus goes into this psalm because he realizes that there's a mindset of bondage in that room that night. Can I take some liberty for a minute? Here is Jesus seeing that the disciples have a mindset that may not be correct for where he is taking them. And so he's trying to cut away some things from them so that they'll be prepared for what is next in their life. So he reminds them of the Israelites who were in Egypt, who got freed from Egypt because of the graciousness of God and went into the promised land. But I need you to understand something. He's not only reminding the disciples what God did for Israel. He's also trying to carve out some things that need to be carved out from their own thought process. Because think about this with me for a moment. When he makes reference to the Israelites, the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years. The Israelites were living in a land that was not their own. In fact, verse 2 says that they were being spoken to with a foreign tongue for 400 years. For 400 years, they were hoping for a Savior-like figure to come in and deliver them for 400 years. And then all of a sudden, God delivers them and walks them into freedom. But yet, the problem with them walking into freedom, if you do any research in the Old Testament, is that you will see, even though they did not have the physical uh, representation of bondage anymore, they did not have the chains around them, they still had the residual effects of Egypt in their minds. Because the very first day or so into the desert going to the promised land they begin to cry out to Moses is this what your God meant for us is this what your God meant is this what freedom is supposed to look like immediately they begin to complain about freedom is this what your God had in store for us we could have stayed slaves remained slaves in Egypt and we could have died there and at least been buried and here we are out here in the desert is this what your God had in store for us they're beginning to complain about the very freedom that God has given them. But God had to cut something away in order to walk them into where he was taking them. Why? Because if you, if you research their trek, if you will, the reason why God left them in the desert for 40 years is because they kept filling their mouths with complaints. Complaining about the very nature of God rather than the promise of God. And finally, 40 years later, God begins to take the people of Israel into the promised land and he's going to use Joshua. But before he can take them into the promised land, he has Joshua do something. In Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, I want you to see this. Joshua 5 verse 6 says, says this. It says, the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all of the men who were of military age 
I want everybody to do me a favor. I want y'all to turn around and, and, and see if the print on that back screen is as small to you as it is to me. She said it's blurry. I think it's just the lights in here. I told the first service it's definitely the lights because I'm wearing white pants and for some reason they look pink. It says, of military age, watch this. Holy Spirit, come back. <laughs> of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. Now watch this. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that they had, he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and those were the ones that Joshua circumcised. We'll keep this G-rated. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, this all sounds painful, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Now, now hold on a second. Because that is not the greatest significance in these few verses. What we're about to read is where it gets heavy. What we're about to read is that God used that physical illustration to make a spiritual application. Because he says this in verse 9, So then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So that place has been called Gilgal to this day. He says, I have rolled away the reproach. From that day on, I have rolled away the reproach. The reproach that he has rolled away is not a physical reproach. He's pointing to something spiritual. There is a spiritual lesson that he's pointing to. He's saying to them, it's not the physical things that I've rolled away. It is your thought process that I've rolled away. Because you cannot go into what shall be if you're still holding on to what was. You cannot go into Israel if you're still holding on to Egypt. Is somebody going to help me? You cannot walk into the promise if you're still holding on to something that looks like the problem. You cannot walk into freedom if you're still thinking like a slave. So here the disciples are remembering all of this as they're singing this song in the upper room. And here's Jesus singing this and he's reminding them of everything that God has done and and that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's pointing them to the greatest redemption act in the Old Testament. Some of you are in Egypt today. I don't know who this is for, but some of you are in Egypt today. And what used to be uncomfortable for you is certainly now intolerable and it seems cruel and you're wondering why and you're wondering how and you're wondering when the same thing the disciples were doing that day in the upper room your Egypt doesn't look like like it did for the Israelites from thousands of years ago but yet it's nonetheless more than you can bear at times that's where the disciples were at I mean, I can imagine like Peter and John having these sidebar conversations while all of this is happening. You know, here they are in this worship service and Jesus has just given them broken bread with them. And, and they're coming to the side saying, man, I don't understand this, man. What are you? Peter's saying to John, John, what, what, what do you think about this? I don't understand it. I don't, I don't understand it because I, I got rid of everything to follow this man. I mean, I got rid of a fleet of, of fishing vessels. Now I have nothing. 
do you understand this, John? And John's like, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I thought that Jesus loved me. Y'all don't read your Bible because John said, that was a joke, that he was the beloved one. So here's John saying, man, I thought he loved me, but now he's talking about we're going to be alone. He's talking about that, that we have to do this on our own. He's talking about that, that, that we have to give it all, all away. He's talking about he's going to die on the cross. He's talking about all this stuff that we didn't know. This is not how we thought it was all going to go down, but yet they're singing praises to God. But then the psalmist shifts gears and he goes to a whole nother level. In Psalms 114, beginning in verse 3, you've got to see this. I need you to grab hold of it. It says, from the rising of the sun. No, excuse me, that's the wrong chapter. Here it is, chapter 114. It's my eyes. The sea looked and fled, and the Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it? See that you fled. Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Grab this. Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Grab this. Think about this with me. Moses goes to the Pharaoh and finally convinces the Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And he did not do it like you did in vacation Bible school. He didn't go and, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh, baby, let my people go. Some of y'all never heard that because y'all missed the part. You were supposed to go, mm. It didn't look like that. It was a long, arduous process where God had to be involved. But finally, the Pharaoh was convinced to let the people of Israel go. And they're walking and marching towards their freedom. But the very next day, the Pharaoh wakes up and he says, Oh, I've made a mistake. Send the army after them. Kill them all or bring them back. The army begins to pursue the people of Israel. They get to the Red Sea, and when they get to the Red Sea, their backs are to the Red Sea. The army of Egypt is bearing down upon them, and then they begin to cry out to Moses, is this what your God had planned? Is this what freedom is supposed to look like? Because it seems like to me the prison of slavery is winning out. Is this what your God had planned? Because it seems like the problem is so much greater than any promise of, of a land that he's given to us. Is this what your, your God had planned? Because this seems to be impossible. And all of a sudden Moses stands up with the with the staff of God and when he does the seeds are parted and I don't know who this is for but sometimes God will allow you to go through a situation that seems to be impossible so that you'll realize it was not the generosity of the Pharaoh that set you free it was the God who parted the seas I don't know who this is for but some of you are in a situation that seems to be impossible you ought to rejoice because God is about to do something miraculous in your impossible situation that's what the psalmist was saying that's what Jesus was seen. All things are possible to him who believes. Somebody say, I'm coming out of Egypt. There's the second reason why the Jewish culture would sing this song. The second reason, number one, was to remember how God delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians, but number two, it was a more personal reason, so that they would remember how God had shown up for them personally. But here, the people of Israel are standing on the shore, complaining. The disciples are confused in the upper room and asking, 
all kinds of questions and just not really certain about what they're hearing because what they're hearing seems to be so much more than they're able to do. And, and, and it seems like they're thinking, well, hold on a second, God, we've given it all. We've given it all away. There's nothing left. And now you're going to leave us, Jesus. You're going to leave us. They have forgotten the promise of you, he will never leave me or forsake me. You know why? Because they were playing this movie out on the projector screen. They were, they were projecting their weaknesses onto God. And when you begin to play out that movie on the projector screen, you will begin to focus upon the wrong things. You will begin to focus on what's missing rather than what you have. You, you'll begin to focus on what is broken in your life rather than what God has already healed. You'll begin to focus on, on fear rather than faith. You'll begin to focus on your brokenness rather than who is your supply. You'll begin to believe what is happening in your situation is going to dictate where you're going. Good Lord have mercy. Why? Because you're projecting your weaknesses onto God. I talked to this guy recently. I was asking him how he was doing. He said, man, I, I just don't have enough of what it takes to receive the breakthrough. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I just don't have enough. Has anybody ever had that movie play out in your life? The movie of not enough? Anybody? Nobody? Everybody. How about the sequel? Not, not enough. Never enough. Sick of not having enough. How about the fourth or fifth movie? I've had enough. <laughs> Anybody ever been there? I feel like that's where the disciples were at at this moment. In fact, to be honest with you, I feel like the disciples were all of a sudden beginning to change their prayers some. Because they had been praying, if you'll research the Gospels, they had been asking Jesus to use them. God, use us the way, he, you know, Jesus is being used. They've been praying that. Now, all of a sudden, they're probably in the upper room trying to ask for deliverance from their very first prayer request. You know how we are. We ask for God to use us, and then he uses us, that he answers our prayer, and then months later, we're complaining about being used. <laughs> You know how we are. We ask for God to cause us to be a bridge to bring people to him. And then months later, we're complaining about people walking all over us. <laughs> mm. And so we begin to focus on our situation. And our situation causes us, it dictates to us what we believe. Can I tell you something? If the enemy can get you to focus on the bondage. He can make you forget and ignore God's promise of freedom. If he can get you to focus on the bondage, he can cause you to ignore God's promise of freedom. If he can cause you to focus on your loneliness, you'll forget the promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you even until the end of the earth. If he can get you to focus upon how poor you are, you'll forget that God came to rescue the poor in spirit. If he can get you to focus on what's wrong with your marriage, you'll forget what God can do in your marriage. If he can get you to focus on how little your gifts seem to be, he'll cause you to miss the opportunities that God wants to utilize what's in your hand for the glory of God. Lord, have mercy. Y'all going to help me this morning? So here they are projecting their weaknesses on God. 
here the disciples are, there the people of Israel were projecting their weaknesses upon God. Can I tell you something? The enemy cannot take your destiny. I need you to hear this. The enemy cannot take your destiny. But what he will do is he'll cause you to be so focused upon Egypt. He'll cause you to be so focused upon Egypt, whatever your Egypt is. He cannot take your destiny, but he will cause you to be so focused upon Egypt that you'll be discouraged and depressed and you'll find nothing worth celebrating. And then you'll wonder what's going on in your life because you're so focused upon the bondage of Egypt rather than the place of freedom that God is taking you. Well, be focused upon Egypt. And that's how he can't take your destiny. But you fill up the projector screen as large as you can with whatever your Egypt is. And therefore you miss it because you're complaining about what's not happening rather than who God is. Hold on a second. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Think about this. Here was this woman with the issue of blood. The Bible says that for 12 years she went from here, there, and everywhere trying to be healed. For 12 years, everywhere she went, she, she went to doctor after doctor, the Bible said, in hopes that she would be healed. The Bible says she spent all that she had. So now she's not only sick, but she's broke. Egypt. Until she does something that she was not supposed to do and she fell at the feet of Jesus. Movement did not happen in her life until she fell at the feet of Jesus. The point that I am trying to make is that only God can bring you out of Egypt. What you need to hear is that some of you have called, God has called you out of the problem, out of the bondage, into the promise. But the problem is there are insurmountable odds in between you and where God is taking you and you have allowed it to become your Egypt. It's time now to come out of Egypt because the freedom of God that he has for you is so much greater than what is coming against you. Lord, have mercy. Mm. Egypt. I want you to think about this with me for a moment because I think this is exactly where some of you are at this morning. I think some of you have come to this church week after week after week. After week, after week, after month, after month, after month, after month, after year, after year, after year, after year, hearing about the freedom of God, but taking up residence in the bondage. And the reason for it is because you feel like what's in your hand is too little to overcome what it is that you need to do. Because what's in your hand is not enough. But can I tell you something? He is all that you need. Because what's in your hand when it's given to God will become supernatural. And that's where the miracles work. Somebody say coming out. Somebody say coming out. What you need to understand is the psalmist was saying that there is nothing that Egypt can do to keep you out of the promise that God has for you. What Jesus was singing is that there there is nothing that the enemy can do that can keep us out of the victory called the resurrection. So what we need to understand is we may have a little, but he's all that we need. We may have a little provision, but he is our Jehovah Jireh, our provider. We may have a little know-how, but we know who. We may have a little energy, but he is our strength. Somebody needs to help me stand up on your feet and say that I'm coming out because the sea fled. The 
seas fled and the, and the river turned back. Good Lord, have mercy. Everybody stand on your feet. I, I, can I finish? Can I finish? Hold on a second because there's a third reason why the Jewish culture sings this song. You see, what I'm about to tell you, had it not happened, then Psalms 114 would not have been included in the Halil. Because really, it would have not had any inspiration for generations that lived beyond Jesus. But because of what happened, they sing it today. Look at verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8. The psalmist has just asked the questions, why? Why? How did the mountains do that? Verse 7 begins to give us the answer. Tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob who turned the rock into a pool and the hard rock into the springs of water. I need you to imagine this with me for a moment. Here was Jesus singing this. Here was Jesus singing this to a group of disciples that were about to experience something that was so much greater than them. But I need you to also imagine the strength that must have come to that room when they began to sing those two verses. Because now those two verses are not only something that God did then, but it's prophetic for what God is about to do through the Lord. Lord have mercy. You see, the third reason why the Jewish culture sings this song is to remember how Jesus set us free from the bondage that we faced. Lord have mercy. You see, that's what Jesus was proclaiming that night. It's the work that's about to take place. It's going to offer you something that you did not even realize. Now it brings a new meaning to Psalms chapter 113 when he said, Praise ye the Lord. Praise him all ye servants of the Lord. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. He is your forgiveness. Praise ye the Lord. He is your healing. Praise ye the Lord. He is your tomorrow. Praise ye the Lord. He is your breakthrough. Praise ye the Lord. He is bringing you out of Egypt into the promised land. Praise ye the Lord. Is somebody going to put your hands together and help me praise the Lord? I love how God's word never returns void. And they were singing this psalm 1,500 years before Christ was even born. Then Jesus is singing this psalm in the upper room. And the last two verses were prophetic, pointing to the coming Messiah. Oh, Lord have mercy. And now he's in the upper room singing it with the disciples who are in the same place that the Israelites were years before. Don't let your Egypt keep you out of what God has for you.